Welcome, I'm Marie-Laure Oskerson, and this is From the Booth, where we talk about the films playing at BYU International Cinema. This week at IC, you can watch The Host by Bong Joon-ho from 2006, and it's in Korean, Belfast by Kenneth Branagh, that's from 2021, and Bajda, a 2012 film by a first woman director from Saudi Arabia, Aifa Al-Mansur, in Arabic. But I'm joined by Chip Oskerson, and we're talking about the documentary Earth Muted by Osa Ekman, Oscar Edin, Mikkel Christensen. It's in Mandarin. It was made in 2021, and it's about 70 minutes. Chip, you're a professor in the Comparative Arts and Letters Department. You also serve as the Associate Dean of General Education at this time. You're passionate about the environment about films and international cinema. You served as co-director at IC from 2017 to 2020. Your areas of research are 19th and 20th century Scandinavian literature, silent film, and the relationship between literature, film, art, and the environment. You're also, one of the things that you do that I want to know today because of the topic of our podcast, you are right now the advisor for BYU Earth Stewardship Club and your responsibilities include coordinating and helping to plan student group activities. Welcome, Chip. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. And I should as well tell our listeners who might not know any of us, I'm assistant director at International Cinema, and I'm also your wife. You're That's my it. husband. <laughs> so, well. so it's lovely to have you back on the podcast. Podcast that you actually started. That's and, right. And we created. started several years ago. So yes. it's good to see that it's still going strong. You it's guys are doing a great job with it. Still going, yes. So Earth Muted, this is a documentary made by Swedish filmmakers. There's a, a group of them. You know that we have seen a film before by one of them, Mikael Christensen, the Swedish filmmaker. We had, right. we had Lightyear here several years ago. Lightyear, thank you so much. I was going to say it in Swedish and I was not sure of that. Useful, yeah. Thank you for that too. So he filmed it in his garden and the plants, the animals, the children that live and share this garden are portrayed in a, in a beautiful way. So you're familiar with his work. What is your take on this filmmaker and what he does? Yeah, so Mikael Christensen is a really, I think, interesting documentary filmmaker. Uh, as you mentioned, his interest is in nature and in the environment. He, he would, I think, consider himself a nature photographer. He hasn't made that many films, really, and especially not that many feature-length films, but the ones that he has made have been very successful. This one from 2021 is still kind of making the circuits. It came out during the pandemic, and it's uh, it's been shown to, to great acclaim, but it doesn't seem like it's it's had that much exposure yet. But the film Lightyear that came out in 2008 was nominated by several Swedish critics as the best film of the year and was in theaters and, you know, that it actually did fairly well at the box office, but it didn't export very well, which is kind of interesting. I think, you know, maybe says a little bit of something about the way that Scandinavians and Swedes in particular view these, these kinds of things. They view them differently than what a more general European or international audience might. And then his film, uh, 1998, Kestrel's Eye, I think is, is what it's translated in English. Again, it's a really interesting nature documentary. And in the case of both Lightyear and The Kestrel's Eye, there's no narration in these films. So they're nature documentaries in the sense that they are they're real life. They're not staged you know, in, in the way that a fiction film or feature you know, film might be. But nor are they didn'tic. They're not trying to preach to you a, a particular message. They're incredibly open. 
and they allow you to kind of draw what you will from them, which can be frustrating for some viewers, but it's a really, I think, interesting take. One other long film that preceded those, and it's called Pika Pika, and that one's from 1987. And Pika Pika is the scientific name for the magpie. And in some ways, this is a helpful film for understanding what his overall project is. So this whole film is about magpies. And magpies, you know, if you're familiar with a magpie, they tend to live around humans. They kind of eat everything, trash and everything else. And they're kind of invisible in some ways because they're everywhere. They're kind of like pigeons. And so what was the really interesting move about this was you take the camera and the camera refocuses our attention to something that all of us have seen, especially if we live in, in Northern Europe. And all of us have seen, but haven't paid very much attention to, maybe. And that's one of the powers of cinema, is its ability to focus our attention in a particular kind of way. And it does that both in how it frames the shot, it does that in, in terms of how it edits things together, and it makes connections and invites us to make connections. So in the same way that Pika Pika does this with magpies, the kestrel's eye is doing this with a nesting pair of kestrels in a church tower. Lightyear, as you mentioned, is filmed in his backyard, and it's like the nature that's all around us that we don't always notice. I mean, it's a pretty spectacular backyard, I do have to say, but it's, a, in a sense, an average you know, kind of backyard, average nature. Earth Mute is a little bit different. There's a little bit more uh, use of a soundtrack here that we do have some instrumental music that comes in. But again, we don't really have a narrator. We only have the characters kind of speaking in the context of their everyday life. And again, I read this as part of this overall project that he's been involved with for a long time, using the camera to focus our attention on things. And in this case, it's focusing our attention on ecological crisis without the same kind of alarmist tone that we typically see when we see this kind of thing represented. Very good. Yes, we don't see forest burnings, but we do see bees that are suffering because of the pollution. And we see how, as well how... Well, we see people suffering too. Exactly. Right? That was going to be my next point, is that we see people moving closer to the mountains. So the bees are not as exposed to pollution. That means that families are separated and, mm -hmm. and lifestyles are, are changing. So yeah, we do see the effect on families for sure. So we have a Swedish film crew. It's um, filmed in China. It's about... Three Chinese families, they're farmers. Yeah, they all have something to do with fruit trees. That's the fruit trees or bees, right? That this is the, the thread that links all three of these families together. And they're in the same geographical area. The same general geographical area, yeah. that's right. So would you say, is this a Chinese documentary? How do the filmmakers on cultures, biases make show in this uh, film? Even though it looks very transparent, you talked about objectivity, but yet the camera is, is focusing on, on specific things and the camera is making us look at specific things or, or listen to, to different conversations. As you mentioned, there is no commentaries, no voice-off, even though I would have liked some more explanation. Yeah. Some, some of the things were very puzzling to me and I would have liked to be educated on, on some of those methods that the farmers have. So what, what is your take on the international nature of this documentary? You know, I can't speak to the East Asian documentary tradition as much. I'm just not just not as familiar with it. I do see a strong thread, you know, tracing this back to Christensen's other work. And for that matter, the other uh, Swedish directors that are involved, Osa Ekman and Oskar Hedin, they're, uh, I, and I haven't seen, you know, a lot of their stuff is, is shown on TV and, and things like this, That so I don't know it quite as well as the work on Mikael Christensen, just because I've done some research on him. But their documentaries tend to be this slice of life kind of thing, you know, everyday life. It's not kind of the exceptional sort of thing. And that's true with these families. I don't know that there's anything particularly unique about these families that were being shown. 
they are it's everyday life that we're that we get which is i think from a cultural standpoint really interesting now they do come as outsiders they try to be as unobtrusive as possible there's no acknowledgement of the camera but you're absolutely right that the camera must impact how they're interacting with each other at, at some kind of level he shot this in four trips to china that is Mikko Christensen's also the, the dp and it was just him and an interpreter <laughs> with this you know with these families and they they stayed for like a month each time so long enough that there was some familiarity and clearly some trust but the film while i don't think that it would and i haven't read that it's kind of raised the hackles of censors or anything like that in in China it's quietly subversive right because it's showing the way that different practices that have led to short term gains in terms of the production of food are causing these long term problems and disruptions in society and in and in family and this takes place first and foremost you know for the film in terms of the way that the use of pesticides have killed off insects pollinators and you know a huge percentage of our food is completely dependent on pollinators and so the opening image of the film and the image that kind of kickstarted the program that has kickstarted the the idea for the film is this image of people with these kind of feather duster looking things hand pollinating trees right something that we historically have have relied on insects to you know to take care of and it's that on the one hand resourcefulness right that they they're going to continue to you know eat fruit and need to make a you know a living they're going to do the best they can but it's such a kind of a, a bandaid on a much deeper problem and that's what becomes kind of exposed through the film not so much that we were given this detailed look you know line by line back through kind of supply chains or you know kind of economic policy it's not at that level at all but we see the way that individual families existence is completely disrupted by the unfolding ecological crisis this is something that rob nixon who's a, a critic for, out of the university of wisconsin at madison refers to as slow violence right and slow violence is a kind of cost to individuals that takes place over time right it's not quick it's not immediate it doesn't always make the news it's a slow kind of unfolding that takes place and it has to do with this completely dysfunctional relationship we have to food and to agricultural practice and the fact that it's so hard for these people to make a living because of what we do. Yes, what is going to help them build a house? There's a family they're struggling to build a house. Another family has to have their daughter live with grandparents because thousands of miles away, yeah. They're too far and yeah. they they live in a very temporary type of tent looking. Yeah, we see the hardship that they go through and how this is impacting them. first and foremost yeah. right so this documentary is very well structured we go from one family to another to another we we're this is the story of three families what do you think about this way of structuring a documentary we see a lot of documentaries like this a little bit of the story number 1 then we jump to number 2 then we jump to number 3 to come back to number 1 and the whole documentary is telling us the stories like that How do you feel about this what works what maybe does not work so well Yeah so I think the effective part of it is the way that it's not just one person it's many people right and it gives this kind of sense that this is a general problem that's not isolated you know to this one specific instance but it comes at the cost especially when you don't want to have kind of a voice over narrator that's kind of telling you all the time what to see and what to think it comes at the cost of a little bit of confusion and for me i needed to kind of pick up on certain markers to definitively know 
which story we were in, mm -hmm. right? Because if it didn't happen to start with the main character, <laughs> I, I could be confused at which situation we're in because they're, in some senses, all very similar. And it's the same place. They're roughly from the same socioeconomic kind of strata. Maybe one family might be a little bit better off than the others, but there could be a lot of confusion that way. But I, as I was indicating earlier, I think that that confusion is in a sense intentional because it makes it more generalizable. It's one story that's being told, and that's the story of, like I said, this ecological crisis. I think even the name of the film, Earth Muted, is inviting us to think about Silent Spring, right? And Rachel Carson's you know, book from the early 60s that really kickstarts the modern environmental movement, it's all about pesticides, right? And specifically the ways that it impacts natural ecosystems and by extension humans. That work continues to echo in how we talk about the environment and our relationship to the environment. I, I read the title, Earth Muted, as harkening back to that in a, in a kind of way. Interesting, very good. For our listeners who would like to explore more environmental topics in film and literature, what are some of the titles you would recommend for them to read, for them to see? It kind of depends on your taste, of course. There's just an explosion of things, both in terms of feature films that is kind of fiction films, as well as documentaries. And, you know, and even within documentaries, that it's so varied, right, that you have you know, documentaries that are much more kind of on the nose, a message that they're trying to drive home. And then you have films more like Earth Muted that are that are very open, right? That it's it's very intentionally not telling you what to think about it. In fact, it's not even explaining it all to you. And that's intentional. It's inviting you in in a different kind of way. I regularly teach a class on environmental humanities, and we try and throw in a, you know, a mix of, of everything in doing that. International cinema has been really good at showing films over the years, too. Some of the films that I like to show to my students and talk about with them, uh, one is Princess Mononoke by Japanese filmmaker uh, Miyazaki uh, that a lot of people are probably familiar with. And I think that this film is really interesting in that it avoids some of the, the classic Western dichotomies of thinking about the environment where people are either good or bad. Um, one of the things I really like about this film is that people are both good and bad as, as people are, right? Um, people aren't always a problem in the environment. They're a part of the environment and have to figure out their place in that. So that, that's one that I, I really like. Another, another film that I've, I've been teaching that has a really interesting ecological message is uh, Aaron Aronofsky's film Noah from a few years back, which is an interesting consideration of the of kind of a, a Christian or Judeo-Christian, better said, kind of understanding of Genesis and the story of Noah with some interesting implications there. There's, 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 <laughs> there's, there's so many, yeah. Maybe they can send you an email and ask you. Or take the class. Or take the class, absolutely, yes. Now, for our audience who would like to get more involved in helping in environmental causes, where should they Look. Well, there's all kinds of great student clubs on campus that are doing great things. You mentioned BYU Earth Stewardship is a club that's been around for a very long time, and it's you know students kind of from across campus. There's also clubs like the Environmental Science Club that's you know a little bit more focused to that discipline, but really you know some great energy there. There's been lots of efforts on campus to bring these groups together. We now have a sustainability office on campus. And that's a great clearinghouse for information. You should you know, check out their website because they post a lot of the activities that are going on on campus and ways to get involved. This semester is a particularly exciting time at BYU. We have two forum speakers coming later this semester, both of whom are in their own way interested in questions about the environment. The first is Professor Paul Cox, 
who was a former BYU professor who started an organization called Seacology that does some really great conservation work around the world. He's an ethnobotanist and so has a really sensitive understanding of the way that humans interact with their environments. And that's going to be a really great, I've heard him speak before, and it'll be a really fantastic forum in the end of October. And then the end of November, we have Catherine Hayhoe, who's the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. She's going to be coming. And she is a climate scientist, but also uh, she teaches down at Texas Tech University. And of course, this is in the Bible Belt. She herself is evangelical Christian and has given a lot of careful thought to how uh, faith and questions of climate change interface with each other. And shes I've heard her speak before. She's been to BYU before, actually. She's such a dynamic speaker and so hopeful that she really has a great way of instilling hope and being able to change things for the positive. And I think that both Paul Cox and Catherine Hayhoe really embody something that I see going on in this film, which is trying to understand human place within the environment. You know, too often that we think about nature as being out there somewhere and not including us somehow, and that we're always a problem. And certainly we, we've done things to, to our environments that have degraded them in different kinds of ways, many different kinds of ways, but we necessarily have to exist within environments. And so imagining a productive relationship between ourselves and the environment, that's really the key. And that's what I think that they're going to bring that message to campus in a really interesting and powerful way, I hope. And I've heard both speak in the past, and they are amazing yeah, speakers, really are and their messages are very important, and yeah. they deliver them masterfully. Yeah. So now, for the fun part of our podcast, I have a few choices for you, and the goal is for you to just react. You don't think very much. I don't know what the question is. About this. Are. Yeah, okay. Well, it's all about film. So, favorite filmmaker, Ingmar Bergman or Carl Theodore Dreyer? It's uh, a hard one. Yes. Um, probably have to go with Bergman, though. <laughs> okay, I go with Bergman, too. Favorite modern Scandinavian film now? Woman at War. That's an Icelandic film we mm -hmm. had at IC not so long ago. And then Force Majeure. That film is playing at IC beginning of October. Okay, anyway. I think I would probably have to go with Woman at War. Actually. Oh my goodness, me too. I love this I, film. I like the, I like Oslund and I like Force Majeure quite a bit. But there's a kind of cynicism in yeah. in Oslund uh, films that I mean, he's all about making you feel uncomfortable. If you've seen The Square last semester, know that Force Majeure is not as uncomfortable. But it is uncomfortable. But you know, depends on how how comfortable you are in your masculinity. If you're that's fan. right. Favorite actress: Greta Garbo or B.B. Anderson from Persona and other many films that Ingmar Bergman did. I think I have to go with Greta Garbo. All right, interesting. Hmm, I'll go with B.B. Yeah, I. You didn't put Harriet Anderson on the list. That's that's one of my favorite Bergman uh, actresses, actually. I should have <laughs> the other one. Favorite actor: Max von Sydow. From The Seventh Seal, he's the knight, if you remember that film. Or Matt Mikkelsen, King Arthur, Hannibal, etc., etc. Yeah, I, and Matt Mikkelsen is probably who I'd have to go with, although ah, it's hard to say no to, interesting. to Max Mosito. I thought you were going to pick Max. Uh, I, I really like, Matt Mikkelsen has a range that, he does. that's really impressive. I'll go with so. Max too. Okay, favorite film, Hunt for the Wilder People from Taika Waititi from New Zealand, or Parasite from Bong Joon-ho, who did the host that's playing at IC this week, actually. <laughs> so different, I yeah, know. Yeah, it's hard to compare those. So, I mean, in, in terms of, of film, I mean, Parasite is so much better <laughs> as, as a film. But Hunt for the Wilder People is fun. Yes, 
I'll just go with Hunt for the Wilder People. I mean, I, I like Hunt for the Wilder People okay. a lot, but in terms of, of quality filmmaking, if that's the question, then Parasite no, is virtually unparalleled. Just, so. just like you as, as a person, not like as a professor who analyzes film. Favorite film on food, Babette's Feast from Gabriel Axel or The Lunchbox, Ritesh Batra, a Hindi film. I bet that's easy. Yeah, I knew you would do this. Yeah, so nice I love Babette's Feast too. So, so good. Slapstick. Are you ready for that? Okay, this is going to be challenging for you. Mon oncle or Mr. Bean? <laughs> Mr. Bean drives me nuts sometimes, so I'll go with uh, Jacques Tati. <laughs> Jacques Tati, I'll go with Jacques Tati. Uh, it's, it's more understated, which I appreciate. Sometimes, I mean, I laugh at Mr. Bean too, but sometimes yeah. just too over the top. Right? I know, I know. Well, thank you so much, Chip, for joining us. It was delightful, as always. And thank you all for uh, being with us on From the Booth. We're grateful for the support of the BYU College of Humanities who make our program possible. Please note that the opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent official views of the university or its supportive institutions. Work on the Sound is by Hannah Guevara. The music is by John Stallings. Come and see Earth Muted this week. Check the IC website for the complete schedule of the film's showing at ic.byu.edu.